Welcome to Not A Token Hire podcast, presented by Nokri, where we talk talent and HR with the experts. This week, we have Benoit Hardvalley, Managing Director at Accenture. We'll talk about Benoit's experience with DEI and, as he puts it, how he became a white person. We also discuss Web 3.0, the metaverse, and if it has a real value proposition in work. I'm your host, Maz Rana, co-founder and chief operating officer at Nokri. Thank you for joining me, Benoit. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Benoit, you know, you and I have known each other for quite a while now. Um, but, you know, besides being the amazing charismatic person that you are, um, we would love for you to just share a little bit about your background uh, to the audience. Yeah, absolutely. So again, thanks for having me. I'd love to have these uh, conversation and share with your uh, audience. So if if you look at where I am today, so I work for Accenture, I'm a managing director in our workday group. So essentially a health organization who are modernizing their HR, transforming their HR and bringing all different technical and functional capabilities into the mix. But really, that has always what has interested me and motivated me. I I look at HR as a universe that is fascinating in itself because it's the intersection of economics, right? People work, get money, spend money. So if people have jobs, we have an economics. So it's fundamentally important. And it's also in large part, and we've seen that with the pandemics, it's the human side of the business. So you have this intersection of these two worlds managed by this function who in the last 10 to 15 years is completely changing and digitizing and transforming and who knows what it's going to be in in five or ten years. So I started in my life thinking I would be a philosophy teacher. Then I realized, well, maybe it's not what I want to do or, you know, it was I'd have to joke and say that it, it was good to have uh, deep thoughts about unemployment, but at some point I had to actually get a job and figure out what I want to do. I discovered consulting and, you know, maybe it's a little bit part of the old philosopher who loves to have an opinion and think. Uh, so I work with Gallup and uh, and then after that, uh, IBM or recently Finom People and now Accenture. But that's that's always the, the, the drift, right? How can we use insights and technology to make HR works better, but also create better experience for employees. And these are not conversation we were having 10 or 15 years ago. So it's a, it's quite a thrilling time to be in this business. Oh, and we have a bunch of startups and AI company that are also changing the game. So that's, that's interesting too. Amazing. Thank you for sharing. And you know how you were speaking, Benoit, about uh, 10 to 15 years ago, these conversations weren't even happening in uh, the HR and talent acquisition space. So as we kind of saw that transition to what you do today, what were like some of the challenges that you experienced uh, through that process? So I, I think, well, especially now, the challenge we've seen is, is managing that complexity, right? I, I think for, if, if I think about my dad who used to work in the personnel bureau, as it was called, it was managing, you know, people, they come in, they have, a, you pay them, you retain them, maybe there's benefit, they're let go, you, you move that to another pile of paper. 
and that was it. I mean, I'm sure there were other complexity, but now you have to think about the experience of employees. You have to be, of course, mindful of you know diversity and inclusion and other ESG or environmental, social, and governance uh, issue. You have to retain talent by helping them grow. You have to attract talent. And in many organizations, you have 10, 5, 15, sometimes 50 different IT systems just for HR. And you have programs and policy for succession planning and comp and benefit. So what I see for a lot of HR professional is, is that they have to manage all that change while keeping the boat uh, afloat, right? So it's a complex system with a complex dynamic. And how do you get more value out of that? And there's no simple answer, right? Nobody can come and say, yeah, it's easy. Here's a program, 10 steps, and, and you're there. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people are figuring it out as as you go because there, there's no way to know in advance. So I guess that explains why, why everybody talk about the agile method and mindsets because you have to do a little bit, see what works, adjust, and see what works. And that's tough. Right, and that, that makes a lot of sense and you know uh, just sussing out what's uh, what the best path forward is in that uh, complexity right and you kind of mentioned a few things there Benoit so you spoke about DEI and ESG and I wanted to hit on uh, DEI especially um, as it relates to you personally and your story um, within that uh, kind of that space so um, I would love for you to just like, you know, share how your experience has been uh, as it relates to DEI and your career path and just generally um, in life. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting, right? Because, um, you know, after all the George Floyd events and all in, and the Black Lives Matters, like everybody, I had to do some some thinking and I knew that I was a open person and I tried to value the diversity and understand that people have different paths and, and uh, make sure that I'm aware of that. But I think it forced me to think even further to the point where I had to realize that at some point, um, you know, I. I became a white person right and it's 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 a funny thing to say but here's the 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 explanation and why it's important it's important to realize that because those identities are partly socially constructed there's no genetic or physical profound difference between people of different skin colors right it's absolutely clear from a biological perspective there's only one human race but we grow up with these mental models of our own identity and but what is tricky especially if you're a white male tall cisgendered average looking average confident right so so um well when you grow up like that it's not you don't even think of yourself as a white person you think of yourself as a person right i mean you just the default setting in your mind is, is you know, it, it, it's not about the, the color. I mean, you just think about it. And then you realize, and this is what took me many years to fully appreciate because I, I didn't really felt it in somebody else's shoes, is that from the day they are born, they're being told that they are in a specific category. And if they're not told, they're being remembered. Or you have the insidious question, like, 
how many LGBT people have been asked, oh, so when did you know you were, you know, X, Y, or Z? Well, nobody asked me how I knew I was straight, right? I mean, again, because it's the default setting, right? We consider the default setting as default, and we don't realize that it's also a setting. Maybe it's it's a dominant setting. It's it's the one that is statistically, at least at, at some point, maybe not today, but all of our default setting are also socially constructed. So anyway, it, it, it just, you know, at, at some point, that's why I wrote that piece on LinkedIn that, that I, and I call how I became a white person. And I was triggered by a, a young lady, a nurse, uh, who was, I, you know, I want to say Filipino or I don't know, but I recall that she called, she said, oh yeah, the big white guy. And that was the first time I realized I am a big white guy. I just never thought about it this way. And then, you know, we start thinking and thinking and thinking um, because I think it's easier to be very mindful of diversity and, and the inclusion and the fairness once you bring it down to your values, right? It's not just about following some some benchmark or process or stats. I mean, as, as leader, as people, you have to think about your values and if humanity and empathy and understanding and harmony are truly your values, then this is what should be pushing your personal DNI um, agenda, right? So, I, I mean, I'm, I, won't, I won't be changing the world with that, but I tried to be, a, I would say, a better person or a more mindful person since I had this light bulb coming up to me. Right. And... What I'm, what I'm kind of getting from you, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's almost as though the journey towards uh, DEI and uh, gen uh, going down that path actually starts with um, self-awareness and building self-awareness. A lot of that. You know, I, like many people, I went through some diversity and inclusion training and, and you know, there's a lot of good stuff whether they are impactful or not, I mean, the research is not clear. It's not necessarily the best, but there's one thing that I um, remember for that and that, that because it was very simple but impactful, it was a simple distinction between intent and impact. And to me, this is a good way to bring, like you said, the, this piece of self-awareness. Maybe your intent was to ask a basic question to get to know someone, or your intent was to make a joke. But that joke or that question has an impact on someone. And this is what matters to that other person, right? It's 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 going beyond the golden rule of uh, do unto others as you would them do unto you. No, do unto others as they would want to, whatever, do unto them. Sorry, my English grammar is getting uh, lousy today. But you get, you get the idea, right? How do they want to be treated? If you think your joke or your question is valid, well, a little bit of empathy here and awareness, awareness of others would make you question that when you think about the, the impact. And maybe someone might be suffering for, from that question of, of that joke. And then you get these, that disconnection where somebody defend their impact and somebody else suffer, defend their intent, somebody else suffer from the impact, and then we don't understand each other, right? So, so I think... There's a lot of policies and programs that need to change that. Uh, but I think in, in terms of personal um, 
progress, uh, that's probably a good place to start. Yeah, self-awareness and thinking about your values in action. And you know, it's interesting because um, as we think about, you know, things like self-awareness and DEI, I think one, it, it's quite, quite a universal theme because we, many times we, you know, it, it impacts everyone to some extent in different ways, right? And I think one other thing that similarly just impacts everyone to some extent uh, through their path and their career is being able to, you know, find their voice, right? And I think one of your uh, when we think about your story, one of the interesting things is that you weren't in the HR space initially, right? You started off in a totally different uh, kind of industry and ambitions. And as you transitioned over to HR and what you're doing today, uh, how were you able to, you know, find your voice? And was that a struggle for you? Or was there any specific, you know, story or anecdote that you can share that kind of helped you realize that this was something that you had to uh, kind of do and, uh, you know, flourish um, as, as your career was like, you know, um, continuing on? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always a tough choice, right? Because you start sometime in life with simple assumption, hey, I'm going to study this, 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 or BA, MA, PhD, then I'm going to get a job, I'll be settled. And then you realize, oh, it's, it's not how things work. It's not automatic, uh, or you're all competing for the same job. So maybe you look at something else. I, I think for me, it's, I, I call that the mosaic, right? I, I realized at some point that I need to do something different, but not too different so that I can still justify or sell, if you want, the, the transition. And in this case, it was a big jump from academia to business, but I kept using the same logic when I moved from job to job or even within the same organization from role to role. It's always finding what's the, the adjacent skill set, right? What kind of work has 70, 80% or even 60% for that matter of the skills or, ex or experience that I have that I can reuse so that you can be confident enough to, to do the work, yet you have to be uh, willing to, to learn. So, so to me, that's, it's, it's finding this balance. You have to take the risk and be willing to learn something and at the same time, find something that's, that's close enough because you you start to have a voice i think to to come back to your expressions once you have stories to tell right because this is how we make sense of the world this is how we remember things this is how we like to socialize by telling stories or even bind societies together so we need for our own sense of self a story about our own life you know so what's your life story and and it's kind of funny because you write the story as you live. So when you start in life, you have, you know, the first chapter. So try to find the second one, the third one, and, and make it coherent because nobody likes to read a completely disconnected book. So, I mean, there's a market for that. But most of the people would like to see something with a, a, uh, a thread throughout. And, and the more you progress in job, the more you start to build your own stories about your job. And then you start developing expertise in a different area. And then at some point you realize, oh, actually I have something to say, right? It's not just my own story now. I'm in a position where I can tell stories. And, and this is another way to have a voice is when you build expertise, you start connecting the dots and you make some connection that maybe people didn't see. 
and and to me it you know i start to have that revelation when uh you know you know i would say 10 years ago when it was starting to happen people were talking back then about the millennial and then all the big hr platform were starting to really flourish and there was a lot of innovation and a lot of money being poured into hr and then i was starting to connect the dots and then we were moving from employee engagement to employee experience uh bringing it all together and make it your own story backed by your own personal story. This is how you start to have something to contribute, right? Have something to say that's new, but not completely far out. Okay. That's, uh, that's quite interesting. And, you know, uh, Benoit, one question that I've been kind of very, uh, that I've been burning to ask you is that, you know, it's, uh, quite a few of our listeners, they might be in HR, they might be in talent acquisition, or have like, you know, a focus in DUI, a DEI rather. Um, but there's also an audience that is kind of new to this uh, industry. And one of the things that I wanted to learn from you is being in this space for a very long time. Um, what do you think the most, or that comes to mind, what is the most like um, common misconception that people have uh, regarding HR or talent acquisition? Mm, good question. I, I think, um, unfortunately, there is still that vision that if you go in HR, it's because you're a people person. And not that it's a bad thing, but when people say that, they usually mean something that, that's not necessarily flattering, right? It's, it's the idea that you're a people person as in, you know, I like to talk with people, but I don't necessarily have a strategic business, commercial, or analytics mindset maybe that was the case at some point but if you look at the great hr functions today and in every kind of company every industry it's a lot more than being a people person you need to understand people of course talent skills data technology of course uh it's it's a difficult job, right? Um, don't think that you go there just because you like to socialize and that's going to be easy. I mean, if you think about talent acquisition specifically, being a recruiter is a mix of you're a marketer, you are a seller, you're a process manager, you have to court people. And, and I think specifically about people in talent acquisition who have to hire the very smart programmer, software developers, um, you don't you know you typically don't speak their language right or you, or you get some understanding but you never get to their level of depth so so you have sometimes this discrepancy so these people are the front line of your organization to attract talent and you have to fill the pipeline and find the right candidates who's getting you know 10,000 offers so it's it's tough right i don't want people to think that because it's people and it's 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 all about feelings uh, no it's becoming a multi-dimensional job and and i think with covid and the work from home and all the different pressure on employees it just shows you that it goes from paying people to caring about their well-being to all the employee life cycle in between right not uh, so interesting. And, you know, you've spoken about how it's kind of changed and how it looks like today um, compared to what maybe the perception was in the past. But now as we look to the future, Benoit, 
what do you think this industry is going to look like? Yeah, so <clears throat> I would, you know, in if you would ask me the question in say 2015, 16, I would have said, well, you know, it's all about AI because 2016 was really, I think, the first year where we saw bots and AI and all the major players start to have their their use case. So we had this view that okay, the future is about more automation. We're going to farm out some task to AI bots, and that, that's going to change um, the world. Well, it's not completely done yet, but I think the idea has been installed, right? And I think most organizations use some kind of AI and automation, and it's not a big deal, and nobody thinks that this chatbot will take my job, so to speak, uh, one day. So. So cloud and AI were the, the foundation. So now where do we go from there? And I think, you know, you know, until recently, I wasn't sure about, you know, virtual reality, for example. You know, how real is that? And the next thing you know, everybody start committing to that, you know, between the Microsoft and the Facebook and, you know, even my, my own company. So I had a also a revelation recently that we we have to let go of the simple distinction of there's a physical world and then one day we're going to have a headset and we're going to be in a virtual world. It's much more of a continuum of you can have you know alternative reality, but it's on your laptop. You can have headset. You have also the physical world that is becoming more and more program right so so what we call real versus virtual or artificial there's different layers so i think the future will be the the the, the digitization of the the world if you want not just of hr process so that means for example yes there will probably be one day some job interviews in vr but you can think also with Internet of Things and 5G and edge computing that a job that today is considered a deskless frontline job that you have to do in a plant, you would probably be able to do that from home because you're going to be running a 3D simulation, a digital twin of the plant, and you're going to have to fix it in the digital realm, so to speak, so that you don't even need to be in the plant. You can just send a robot to do that. So suddenly you could be almost like a knowledge worker, right? So I think this is the next revolution. It's going to take us a few years to figure out what it's going to look like. But I yeah, I would call that the, the metaverse continuum. It's the idea that the real and the digital will blend together. It's going to change all of the different job family for sure, which means for HR, it will also bring back common challenge, right? Find a new skills, attract talent and retain talent, right? We talk about the change in the future, but there's things that, that will stay. It's just that... Once they figure out how to attract and retain certain skills, well, the world changed. And now you have to find a new kind of skills. Mm. Very well put. And, you know, the whole, as you're saying, the metaverse and the Web 3.0 is uh, something that's uh, increasingly intriguing. And like the adoption of it is just like, uh, you know, rapidly being implemented. It's, you know, as I think about you know, the journey that you were just previously talking about in terms of artificial intelligence and cloud and how people were adopting that. Um, the adoption was fairly fast uh, historically compared to like a historical context. But as we continue to innovate, things are being adopted even quicker and quicker. And I think we're going to see like things like, you know, Web 3.0 and like the metaverse 
uh, rise and be implemented even at a quicker, uh, at a greater pace, right? So it's going to be interesting for sure. And as you think about that, um, you know, Benoit, and you're speaking about things like skills and things to kind of look for. Um, it might be very early days, but what are like you know some of the general themes or skills you think people like employers, companies, or even someone who might want to be entering into the workforce uh, during that time, um, what are the, some of the skills that you think are important for us to consider um, for a landscape that's going to look like uh, you know Web 3.0 and the, the metaverse? Yeah, I, I, I think it, it's less about the, the specialist skills. I mean, it's it's a mix, right? I mean, you're probably familiar with the T-shaped model of the the professional, and I think that there, there there's still some eternal truth in that. It's good to have one or two specialities. So yes, technical skills, of course, anything around programming or AI or cloud, there's always a a, a market for that. But I think because the world is and industries are changing fast, you need to have these more broad type of skills they could be you know you could categorize some of them as success skills right which is how to understand what's the value that i can provide into an organization how can i network meaningfully right so so figuring out how to be a, a contributor that makes a, a difference then you have the more cognitive skills such as learning, unlearning, relearning, being uh, able to to go with the flow and realize that, okay, now part of my job is working differently. There's an automated process uh, so I can do other work. The, the hope that most of the uh, leaders in the technology is that technology is there to take the tasks that we don't want to do. So if things are going the right way, it means we should be doing more of the tasks we like to do, such as the thinking task, right? the strategic thinking, the collaboration, or the personal relationship. So if that's the pitch and the reality, then we should be thinking about how to develop these skills. Because everybody says it's important to innovate, okay, to be use your imagination, fantastic, but what are we doing to really be imaginative and innovative? I think you have to be curious. You have to find some 1960s sci-fi from, you know, Poland or whatever. Just, oh, you know, especially with the web, you can discover culture from any time, any uh, geography on any topic. So cultivating that sort of curiosity is a way to feed your imagination so that once you face a problem, you can think of something uh, different. So empathy, imagination, collaboration, all of those social cognitive skills will be the big differentiation. And, and that's for the, the, the broader part with a couple of specialist skills. I mean, obviously around uh, technology, but, and, and then you have the, the never ending, um, the never changing insightful skills like understanding an industry or understanding the, the dynamic of commerce and sales, right? Which is not, not about pitching or, or forcing somebody to do something, but really understanding the value equation. How can you help somebody 
uh, solve a problem and and package it in a way that to make a, a compelling offer. You know, there's still 10% of the workforce that is classified under sales, right? So you could think, oh, we're just going to automate all that. People will buy online. You know, and I'm sure you know in your business, people buy from other people. Even though if you're two giant corporation, at some point, it's two people sitting down face to face or Zoom to Zoom <laughs> and talking. Yeah, you know that makes a lot of sense. And I want to backtrack just for a second because I'm, you know, some of our sure. uh, listeners they might not be too familiar with like you know the metaverse or Web 3.0 or maybe something that they're just wrapping their head around right now, as it pertains to work. Um, in specific, uh, Benoit, what do you think the value proposition or uh, what's so you know, uh, compelling about this uh, Web 3.0 and uh, you know, the metaverse for work in specific? Well, at, at a high level, it, it's the same thing that any technology brings, right? It's speed, efficiency, uh, convenience, and a good experience. The difference is that for a long time, we limited all those benefits to a technology that we interface with a computer, now a mobile, right? The difference now with, with, with this new take on technology, I mean, if you have really high speed connection through 5G, if you have a smart sensor, right? If you're a miner or if you're working in a plant and then you have, say, a little hologram in your, your, um, your glasses that help you show the shape of a piece that you're fixing, right? You're bringing a layer, if you want, of reality, if you want to call it, but really it's just a representation that it's in your visual field so that you can work. It's a better experience. It's easier because you don't need to open a book, look at the different pieces, right? I mean, if you ever had to fix your, your own uh, washer or dryer, that's basically how you do that. Okay, sometime you're going to find a YouTube video. But you know, when you're talking industrial mechanics, you need to, to, to go a little faster. And then you need to be connected because if that's not the piece, then you need another scenario. So it's bringing that digital layer over reality. It could be in headset. It could be on mobile. It could be on phones. Um, it's, it's going to be bringing computing power and connectivity to the point of use, not just for somebody sitting in an office in front of a laptop, right? It's going to be everywhere. That makes sense. And, you know, as we think about like some of uh, the, the, the landscape today, um, from your experience, are these uh, things that companies and clients are talking about today and asking, how do we implement this or what are the next steps? What is your pulse on that? Well, I, I would say, and that's probably close to you as well, uh, what I heard from the last uh, few years is uh, a lot of challenges in finding and, and attracting talent. I mean, retaining talent is always a challenge that has never uh, changed. People look for, for a new role. But because we had the shock of COVID and now things are picking up, it's disrupting the pace of economic transformation. And in some industry, you look at logistics and transportation. Um, I remember a client telling me it, it felt like Christmas every day. Not that we're happy that people die of COVID, but the peak that they have at Christmas, that level of intensity, now it was year long, right? So you can imagine how many driver and pilots you need to hire real, real fast. 
So that has created some uh, pressure for a lot of organization. Uh, and, and, and at the same time, you also have the reckoning that a lot of people don't want to do jobs that don't interest them. So you have all, you know, hospitality and, and fast food that are also struggling, not at finding the really skilled professional, but just at finding people, right, in, in stores and, and restaurants and all that. So there seems to be a crisis of talent acquisition for a different reason in different geography. And and again, there's no no magical wand, right? So I know I, I think it's easing in now because people find different solution and there's more automation and uh, you know outsourcing and all that. So it seems like it's it's uh, resolving itself. But uh, from the last two years, that has been top of mind for many people. Right, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, I think like sometimes um the question when it when it comes to innovation sometimes people ask you know is this innovation for the sake of innovation or is this like very real are people actually out there looking for this and wanting it for like a uh to create impact and i think you know as we're looking at what's happening in this space specifically for like you know web 3.0 and uh things like that just similar to what uh, happened with ai and cloud uh, the value proposition is really there and it's compelling, you know, so um, people are going to eventually get there. It's always that, uh, you know, that process of, uh, you know, adoption and transformation, that cycle that people uh, go through. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, once, you know, um, the education has kind of uh, been implemented and people are aware how it's going to end up really changing things and, uh, you know, shaping our future. Yeah, and my hope is that it might also force societies and, and institutions to to bring some areas of, of knowledge that, that we may have uh, sometimes neglected or, or set aside because they were not practical enough, right? There, there's always this set or unset assumption that schools need to produce, you know, workers and, and but, you know, I think they should be producing citizens first. But when you think about, you know, social science or e even philosophy, I mean, the ability to think clearly, to frame your thought, to understand the logic of an argument, you know, logic, statistics and all that, there's sort of general domain skills that could be uh, useful. And we put a lot of emphasis on, on STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, of course, but I think an understanding of, of human conditions and understanding of our own history, I think we're going to need people to guide that future. And we should not limit the future of uh, the next generation by telling them, oh, learn technology and computer. Of course, learn that. You know, that's a given. It's like learn, learn how to walk. Of course. Where are you going with that? What are you going to do? How will you make it a, a better place, right? And and this is where we need to bring a little bit more of that generic education and, and global culture, uh, just to, you know, hopefully bring people together. Perfect. And you know, Benoit, I think that was super insightful. And I want to thank you uh, for bringing your knowledge and sharing it with us today. Um, I've learned a lot. And uh, I think, you know, our listeners are going to also uh, appreciate the insights that you've shared today. Um, before we just like, you know, close, just wanted to ask you, um, where is, uh, where would you like people to find you and connect with you? 
Well, I, like most people, I'm easy to easy to find on LinkedIn. I also have a uh, podcast called Abrupt Future that discussed the similar change, you know, that I started with the, the pandemics because, uh, you know, there was another awakening moment like, uh oh, things are changing. Um, so so you, there's a lot of interviews there. Uh, well, one with you, actually, and, and uh, one of your colleagues. Yeah. A lot of good uh, conversation. But yeah, I'm always happy to exchange or learn from other people. Amazing. Thank you so much, Benoit. Take care and uh, we'll talk again. Thank you. Thanks for having me.